Deepening History is independent and proudly listener-supported. I would like to begin by thanking my newest patron, who went to patreon.com slash history and pledged his support to help keep this experience we share ad-free and thriving. Ryan, my new historian, I salute you and thank you from the center of my being. Consider this a foreword. The script for our tale to be was the most emotionally draining and stressful I've ever had to write. Fred Hampton has held a large place in my heart for much of my life. I first read his words through fragments of his speeches in the seventh grade when our history teacher assigned our class a long essay that would account for 30% of our final grade on anyone involved in the civil rights struggle in America in the 1960s. When my teacher asked the topic of my essay, I was told that I could not write about him because he was a, quote, revolutionary hippie. This only piqued my interest, and over the years, I have read more and more about him, listened to people close to him talk about him, and finally got my hands on his speeches from late 1968 to 1969. Fred's life was so short, and from what I've learned, as any leader of any political movement, he gave many iterations of his speeches before coming to his final versions perfecting and altering them along the way in response to the evolution of his thoughts and the ever-changing circumstances of the world around him. Thus, I've used the last iteration of them, and I'll post links on Patreon and social media so you can read all of what Fred said yourself. While I have read and learned quite a bit about the civil rights movement as a whole, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in particular, I am far from an expert. So I highly recommend checking out One Mike Black History Podcast as it is one of the most well-researched and informative that I've ever come across. The perfect place to start further inquiry. Keep that in mind as we go forward. And with that said, this forward comes to an end. This is Deep Into History, and I'm your host, Arjun Hundle. Today I want to ask you to clear your mind. Put aside everything in the current political discourse. No matter what your leanings, just let them go. It may appear as if the narrative epic we are about to embark upon was written with my personal political leanings woven in, when in fact I took great pains to present our tale to be through a neutral historical lens. Not easy, and at times brought great anguish because I have plenty of thoughts on this tragic and at times soul-crushing recent chapter of our story. The reason that modern history is often perceived as dark is that one cannot help but see us making the same mistakes over and over again. That is to say, the closer an event is to our time, the scale of its resonance is far more vast than, for example, the struggle to save the Republic of Rome as we are experiencing in verses. Especially when that recent history is omitted or altered to suit political narratives. In our tale to be, When I reference and relate past events using examples from our current era, it is done to give context, cultural resonance, or point out how Fred Hampton's deeds are being willfully misrepresented to deceive you. I have striven to do him justice because his story is critically important, strangely beautiful, and must be felt to be understood. I could only do so by projecting the vibe of his time, so that I could attempt to project his vibe his struggle to you. And hopefully, by the end, we'll have succeeded in letting you feel at least the faintest echo of it, because everyone tells the tragic tale of how Fred died, but I want you to experience how he lived. So, take a deep breath, let it out slowly, 
Put some smoke in the air if you choose. And just let your mind flow to my voice as we go deep into the 1960s and move through the streets of Chicago with Fred Hampton and discover why his words shook the powers that be to their core. Fred said, Welcome. To do even the slightest bit of justice to Fred Hampton's remarkable, powerful, and very short life, we must first understand the world in which he was born into and the struggles that shaped him into one of the most charismatic leaders of all time. A world, a country, a city that was being torn apart by the one struggle that combines and is all others. The one struggle that has persisted throughout human history. The class struggle. The rich versus the poor. The oppressor versus the oppressed. All of those political isms, from left to right, communism, socialism, capitalism, fascism, and everything in between, are in effect humanity's recent attempts for societal organization to address the struggle after the collapse of feudalism. Thus the setup to our setup goes like this. During World War I, the royal government of Tsarist Russia was overthrown by the Bolshevik Revolution. Led by Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov, Lenin. It came as a terrible shock to governments across the world. The Romanov dynasty, replaced, overthrown by a communist regime. A revolutionary government, meaning that spreading communism internationally was an open goal. 1917. In America, the bastion of capitalism, the elite, the ruling class, the 1%, if you will, were alarmed. If their peasants and workers could unite and organize like in Russia, then could it happen in America as well? At this time in U.S. history, there were many organizations and political movements from across the spectrum. The groups that were considered left of center, to socialists, to communists, were largely focusing on helping workers to unionize in order for the workers to have fair pay and decent working conditions. Strikes were taking place across the nation, with the owners of industry bringing violent force to bear to break them, using segments of the media and the bully pulpit of prominent politicians to create fear of the menace of communism, shifting public opinion just enough to allow the Sedition Act to be signed into law by President Woodrow Wilson, aimed at communists, socialists, pacifists, and other anti-war activists, meaning anyone who spoke out against the system. The act imposed harsh penalties on anyone found guilty of making false statements that interfered with the prosecution of World War I, insulting or abusing the government, flag, constitution, or military, agitating against the production of necessary war material, meaning striking workers, or advocating, teaching, or defending any of these acts. The act stated that anyone found guilty would receive a fine of no more than $10,000, roughly $300,000 today, or imprisonment of not more than 20 years, or both. This was the same penalty for acts of espionage. And under this law, the president could authorize the arrest relocation or deportation of any non-citizen male residing within the United States that was 14 years or older. And with the first deportations, America entered the era of the first Red Scare. Soon, anyone even remotely connected to any movement that was considered socialist, communist, or even slightly progressive 
was under the constant threat of police harassment and much worse. Strike breakers, private detective agencies, and gangs of hired goons were brought in, and across the country, rivers of blood began to flow as striking workers were brutalized. Terrified by the deportations and violence, a group of anarchists began a series of bombings targeting government and law enforcement officials who were carrying out what was in their eyes a purge. Though most of the bombs were later traced to just a few anarchists, public hysteria and panic reached a point that immediate action was demanded. To experience just a little of that hysteria, recall, if you are old enough to remember, the aftermath of 9-11, when mysterious packages and letters arrived at government offices filled with anthrax. In 1919, Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer appointed a then-young lawyer from the Justice Department as head of a special branch of the Bureau of Investigation, the precursor to the FBI, one J. Edgar Hoover. His task was to gather intelligence on anyone and everyone considered subversive, and Hoover began and soon would become the master of domestic spying techniques by not caring about laws, privacy, or civil liberties. He proved to be exceptional at his craft and worked hard to make himself the lethal right hand of the elite. The intelligence he gathered was used to execute the infamous Palmer raids, vicious and extremely violent, directed at labor leaders, union organizers, and any individual or group that supported them. Deportations skyrocketed and citizens were subjected to literal torture. Just one example, in Detroit, 1,000 people suspected of having socialist leanings were locked on a windowless floor of a building and starved for seven days before being moved to a prison in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where many of their family members were brought before them and tortured to force them to admit their guilt. For African Americans, tens of thousands of whom had served as soldiers in World War I, returned home only to find that in their absence their jobs had been taken or disappeared. Thus many joined the Great Migration to northern states to escape the poverty, abuse, and discrimination of the southern states and their Jim Crow laws, hoping that in the north their service to their country in the war would be recognized and their families could forge a life of dignity. But in the midst of the hysteria of the first Red Scare, quote, Many whites feared that the return of tens of thousands of black veterans with experience living abroad and, more significantly, having received military training, would be unwilling to resubmit to political and social subjugation in the U.S. Many officials and others with little or no evidence suspected black workers of being pawns of Bolsheviks and anarchists. From the National World War I Museum and Memorial Fear that these African-American veterans not only knew how to fight, but in Europe had become communists, were stoked by racists in the media and politicians. This culminated in the horrific race riots in towns and cities across the country that became known as the Red Summer of 1919. African-Americans were attacked, not by fringe extremist groups, but ordinary white citizens, resulting in beatings, lynchings, and widespread violence which the police and local governments did nothing to stop, and in many cases aided in the hideous brutality. But this time it was different. Communities were organized by the returned veterans, 
African-American populations fought back aggressively against racial violence and intimidation as they never had before. The Red Summer saw them proud and not intimidated into submission. Instead, African-Americans emerged from the violence of that bloody summer with a greater sense of shared purpose and pride, forming the roots of the civil rights movement to come. Claiming that there would be a communist coup the next summer in 1920, Attorney General Palmer launched a new series of raids, which, if possible, were even more vicious and disruptive. The public, seeing friends and neighbors' lives made a living hell and sick of government disrupting people's rights to simply exist, turned on the administration, and then openly mocked Palmer when the communist coup never materialized. The public felt that they had been misled and misinformed about the threat of communism in America and the fever of the hysteria broke. For the moment, marginalizing right-wing figures like Palmer, people organized, and with the help of the newly formed American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, legal battles were fought over the infringement of basic guaranteed rights of so many. When in case after case, leading to the repeal of the Sedition Act in 1921, J. Edgar Hoover had proved himself to be a relentless anti-communist, willing to do anything to protect the interests of concentrated capital, and was rewarded by being named head of the Bureau of Investigation in 1924. Then came the terrible man-made disaster of the Great Depression that began in the U.S. and soon spread around the world. The causes for this catastrophe are complex, but to simplify it for our purpose, it was the worst example of unregulated capitalism, greed, come to its natural end, cycles of growth and recession, coupled with massive wealth inequality, culminated in the stock crash of 1929. The scale of the human suffering caused by this is hard to fathom. But to put it in perspective, the 2008 crash, or Great Recession, that we all lived through, cut the gross domestic product of the U.S. by 4.3%. The Great Depression of 1929 saw GDP fall by 30%, and unemployment rise to 25%. At that moment in time, there were other popular ways of organizing an economy and society spreading in other countries, who chose to try communism or socialism as an alternative to hyper-exploitive capitalism which they believed provided the wealth inequality and material economic conditions in which demagogues thrive. For in many other countries, the world was witnessing the suppression of the left amid popular enthusiasm for their policies, leading to a one-man solution, fascism. And in America, there were major socialist and communist movements that were rejuvenated and gaining popularity rapidly among the vast swaths of the population that had been made destitute. Thus, as candidate he proposed, and then as president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt fought to enact a New Deal for America. The typical mainstream definition of the New Deal is that it was a set of policies to address the damage done by the Great Depression based on the three R's, relief, recovery, and reform, using a vast array of federal programs and regulation, a new deal for the forgotten man to achieve a societal economic balance, and in truth, save capitalism from itself, and curb the rise in popularity of socialism and communism, 
Achieving these monumental reforms was not easy. It took a movement of people from all walks of life. It was heavily resisted by the elite at every step, in the courts, in Congress. There were plots to derail the program from the beginning. Most famously, the business plot in 1933. A Wall Street-backed plan to overthrow FDR's government. But the president had the people, and the movement proved too strong. An elite himself, FDR realized that his position of privilege gave him plenty of blind spots. So when considering the reforms and regulations, he reached out to every group he could for their input, including, but not limited to, trade unionists, socialists, communists, and industrialists. The New Deal was a social contract meant to curtail the boom-bust cycles of unregulated capitalism as much as possible and ensure that workers would have a decent standard of living and security in their old age. The wildly popular reforms were interrupted, the social contract incomplete, by World War II and FDR's death in 1945. Still, the reforms and regulations set in place allowed mass unionization drastically raising wages and improving working conditions, along with progressive taxation meant to prevent anyone from becoming so rich that their concentrated capital could subvert democracy, and the estate tax that has been labeled the death tax in recent years was greatly increased so that America would never have a permanent gilded aristocracy ever again, showing in practice that societal wealth is a zero-sum game. And once it could no longer be hoarded, others could get a slice of that proverbial pie. It was a structural basis for the very existence of the middle class as we know it. And the elites, though still rich and privileged by any metric, like this, not at all. The New Deal proved an incredible boon to every American, less so if one were of any ethnicity, and more specifically, if one were African American. In the post-war boom time, when the middle class exploded, the leave it to beaver, every house with a white picket fence era, African Americans were subject to abject cruelty and outright murder in the segregated Jim Crow South. And in other states, their lives were not that much better. Discrimination and hatred ruled the day. From the sadly incredibly long list of horrors, like casual police brutality, even very basic needs in their communities in places like New York and California went completely ignored. The beginnings of this economic boom coincided with the Second Red Scare. In the aftermath of World War II, communist hysteria was on the rise again after the massive success of the Red Army against the Nazis. And contrary to popular belief, Red Scare II actually began under President Harry Truman in 1947 who instituted a loyalty oath to ensure that there were no communists working in the federal government. Hysteria exploded in 1949 when the Soviet Union detonated its first atomic weapon, coupled with the, quote, fall of China. That's the victory of Chairman Mao and the People's Liberation Army in securing the Chinese mainland. A paranoia was created, spread, and fostered by opportunistic politicians and their allies in segments of the media of a red tide sweeping the world. And the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, went into overdrive with politicians wishing to capture attention and headlines. Formed in 1934 to investigate Nazi propaganda, 
Huac was soon directed at communist infiltration of New Deal projects and made permanent in 1946. It soon went after not only just communists, but anyone considered subversive. It became ultra-aggressive when paired in combination with Senator Joseph McCarthy's Senate committee vastly expanded the scope of the investigation. Grabbing headlines, always in the press, it was everywhere, fostering and enhancing the paranoia in the public that communists were seeking to overthrow the government of the United States of America. While media focus was on the hearings and crackdowns on alleged communists in Hollywood and in the government, across the country, quite literally everywhere, lives were being destroyed, families ripped apart. Americans turned on their friends and neighbors during the Second Red Scare. The hysteria and fear led people to report one another for speaking about anything that appeared even remotely left-leaning or critical of the government and many of those poor individuals would end up on the dreaded blacklist, destroying their careers and their ability to function in society. Communism and socialism became sinful words. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI supplied the intelligence that fed these Red Scare committees. Using his position, awesome power, and connection to the elite, one famous example being Walt Disney providing lists of names of anyone with even remotely left leanings and, quote, anyone in Hollywood he didn't like to be blacklisted, the FBI perfected illegal surveillance, wiretapping, stalking, bugging, the use of paid informants, and agent provocateurs. They cemented relationships with local police departments across the country and used them to harass, intimidate, extort, and worse. The Second Red Scare reached its fever pitch during the Korean War which was seen as a direct confrontation between the forces of communism and capitalism, manifested by the soldiers of each side locked in the bloody struggle. Wild theories like mind control experiments on captured American POWs led to tangible consequences when the CIA was authorized to conduct its own experiments. The horrific MKUltra program, using unsuspecting American citizens at home and abroad as its test subjects, the war ended in 1953, but not before the world was brought to the brink of nuclear annihilation. After Allied Commander General MacArthur wished to use atomic bombs on the enemy. This shocked the world. The hysteric spell was on the verge of breaking. And much of the public began to see the threat as more imagined than real. Communist Party membership in the USA had been declining rapidly after the socialistic policies enacted in the wildly popular New Deal. Coupled with Red Scare II's societal purge meant that it was becoming more likely to be trampled by an elephant than to actually know a member of the Communist Party. But this time, the hysteria would not be allowed to dissipate. In March 1956, J. Edgar Hoover met with President Eisenhower and his cabinet in an emergency meeting to expose the existence of a major threat, the Fifth Column, a supposed mass infiltration plot of Soviet agents who would organize domestic sympathizers into all areas of American society that would sow discontent at capitalism and the American way of life in a coordinated campaign with the goal of overthrowing the government. Though most in the room knew of the existence of the FBI's illegal domestic spying operations, this was perhaps the first time they began to understand the full scope of it, as Hoover presented his evidence for the fifth column plot. 
For 30 years, the FBI, through trial and error, had developed the most sophisticated surveillance program the world had ever known. And it suddenly made sense how the FBI director had maintained his power for so long. He could and must have damaging information on anyone and everyone he wanted. In the context of the era, with the Red Scare and anti-communism practically a state religion, the president authorized the FBI's counterintelligence program. COINTELPRO, the formal incorporation and expansion of the ostensibly passive surveillance techniques and authorizing the Bureau to engage in active countermeasures, which included, but were not limited to, the collection of information on all communist activities using wiretaps, bugging, intercepting mail, breaking and entering, and then using said intelligence to infiltrate, penetrate, disrupt, and destroy any organization, union, or individual that would be sympathetic to the fifth column. In essence, a covert war on its own citizens. FBI Director of Domestic Intelligence Operations, William C. Sullivan, was put in charge, answering only to Hoover. With extremely limited oversight, COINTELPRO's mandate within the FBI was to expose, misdirect, discredit, and failing that, neutralize any voices Hoover deemed subversive, unleashing a wave of psychological warfare again including, but not limited to, anonymous threats by mail and phone, using the IRS to subject any individual and organization to relentless audits, forging documents to create dissent and rivalry within and between organizations, extortion and blackmail using the intelligence gathered, and then using local police departments to harass, stalk, threaten, frame, and quite literally murder, as we shall see. As stated, Though still pervasive, the Red Scare had lost its fever pitch, and the American Communist Party was on its last legs. So the fifth column threat was linked and woven into the burgeoning civil rights movement. Within just a few years, targeted groups included feminist organizations, anti-war organizers, activists of the civil rights and black power movements, environmentalists, animal rights organizations, on-campus student movements, the American Indian movement, gay rights activists, Chicano and Mexican-American groups like the Brown Berets and the United Farm Workers, independence movements for Puerto Rico and the territories, the Ku Klux Klan, hundreds of journalists, the National States Right Party, and healthcare professionals advocating for abortion rights, and anyone J. Edgar Hoover deemed subversive. In addition to all the illegal tactics, this was the time when the use of paid FBI informants became a preferred practice and the program was massively expanded. Anything and everything to prevent cooperation within and between these groups, so that societal solidarity behind their stated goals would become impossible. In the context of class struggle, sowing these divisions is rather easy when you consider that the elite's only interest is maintaining and expanding their power at the top of society, whereas everyone else has different goals and ideas of how to achieve them. The notion of societal unity behind a few stated goals to reorganize the system as displayed during parts of the New Deal era was never to be allowed to coalesce again. Any leaders that seemed on the verge of getting masses of people to look beyond the false divisions that were thrust upon them must be eliminated. And soon, one leader would come closer to reaching this goal than anyone else, and the government would murder him at just 21 years of age on December 4th, 1969. 
and we'll move into the 1960s after this. I just want to take a moment to thank you for listening. It means more to me than I can ever put into words. And I could really use your help to keep Deep in the History ad-free and keep the lights on, if you will. Please go to patreon.com slash deep in the history. It's just 10 cents a day, and you'll gain access to my ever-growing catalog of exclusive tales, early releases, and the small community of patrons, just the most amazing people. That's patreon.com slash deep in the history. Today, I also have the pleasure of recommending a new book by my friends Dr. Rad and Dr. G, who host the wonderful Partial Historians podcast. Their new book is Rex, The Seven Kings of Rome, available for pre-order now at highlandpress.com. It's going to be so good because everything they do is so good. Now, back to Fred said. From the late 50s to the early 1960s, Cointel Pro's main goal was destroying the civil rights movement, famously stalking, wiretapping, bugging, and harassing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and even trying to get him to commit suicide through blackmail, threatening to use his extramarital affairs to destroy his reputation on the eve of him accepting the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in 1964. When he didn't, this information was slowly leaked. After Malcolm X split with the Nation of Islam, a split encouraged and fostered by infiltrators, informants, and forged documents, he was assassinated in 1965 in what his family's forthcoming wrongful death lawsuit against the NYPD, the CIA, FBI, and other government agencies seeks to expose as a conspiracy, not just to cover up evidence, but may expose direct involvement in the assassination. Meanwhile, after the assassination of President Kennedy, the Vietnam War exploded in both the jungles of Southeast Asia and at home in the streets as anti-war protests became movements for peace. As more and more people saw the war coverage on the news and saw their friends and family being drafted, they began to ask why America was fighting the war to begin with. On college campuses, the demonized words like socialist and communist were being openly embraced. A mass movement began called the Students for a Democratic Society, which soon had chapters on 300 campuses. All were infiltrated under the Co-IntelPro program, and divisions sown from within and without. Anonymous letters were sent to students' hometowns, outing them as socialists and anarchists, bringing shame and social isolation to their families. The modern online equivalent would be doxing. One has to remember that the modern cynicism of the motives of politicians that exist today, while appearing large online, is but a fraction of the population. In the 1960s, it was a fraction of a fraction because the generation that fought in World War II largely believed that their government's motives were pure. As pure as the motives used to fight the Nazis and Japanese fascism. Thus, a few dozen of these letters dispatched to a student's hometown could destroy a family's livelihood if they didn't disown and openly disavow their child's beliefs. Never realizing that the government they believed in was the cause of their despair. Very, and I stress very broadly speaking, the civil rights movement can be seen in terms of roughly two camps. Dr. King's embraced peaceful protests no matter how much abuse, torture, and death was afflicted upon them. Drawing inspiration from and pointing to Mahatma Gandhi's nonviolent protests that helped India gain its independence from the British Empire. 
This tactic proved appealing in the South because at the time, the African-American population there was largely rural or lived in small communities. In the cities of the North and large population centers across the country, many African-Americans saw things differently. To understand their plight, I want you to picture in your mind any war-torn city that you can think of. When I do, I think of the cities of 1990s Bosnia, Iraq, Syria, or currently in the Ukraine. Dilapidated buildings, utilities that barely function, and people trapped where they are because they can't leave, unable to escape a situation they were born into. That was the situation of African Americans in the 1960s in urban centers across America. Instead of a foreign army, they were brutalized by the police. Never feeling safe, unable to relax, because everyone knew that harassment would one day find them. Living in what, in practice, was a slow-burning war zone, which at any moment could burst into flames when major riots erupted in frustration that no other means brought change or stopped the harassment. In 1964 and 65, major riots erupted in Harlem and Los Angeles in response to acts of police brutality. And these were put down and suppressed by more armed force. The Civil Rights Act of 1965 did very little to change the material conditions in urban ghettos. In cities, a growing consensus among disparate thinkers was that their problems were caused by institutional practices, structural racism, and economic inequality, not by the Jim Crow laws of the South. Subjected to incredible violence by the domestic arm wing of their government, they saw pacifism as an impossibility. And though termed militancy, they armed themselves legally, stood up, organized, and said, no more. Now that last statement could and did mean different things to many different people. A few, and I mean a few, African Americans became militant. But what gets lost in the struggle is that two men who grew to be legion embraced militant pacifism. Because when your homeland is being occupied by a force that subjects your people to nothing but violence, abject cruelty, and daily acts of state-sponsored brutality, as if you and your people were worthless fodder to feed the needs of some horrific ancient empire. One must defend oneself and one's community, one's people. Enter the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Founded by Bobby Seale and Huey Newton in Oakland, California, who went door-to-door -door in their community and asked people what they wanted and needed to live a life of dignity and used this information to create the party's 10-point program, which called for freedom to determine the destiny of the Black community, full employment for Blacks, an end to capitalist exploitation of the Black community, decent housing, informed education, exemption for Black men from military service, an end to police brutality and murder, freedom for Black prisoners, Black juries for Black criminal defendants, and land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. Black power meant African Americans organizing and empowering themselves politically while legally arming themselves for protection against the police. Armed Black Panthers in Oakland began following police patrols in their neighborhoods, which enraged the cops, who the Panthers called pigs because by their constant acts of savagery against fellow human beings, they had debased themselves and forfeited their humanity. Thus, they were no longer men. They were pigs. These armed patrols, 
Policing the police had two immediate effects. Incidents of police brutality plummeted in Oakland and brought the Black Panther Party widespread respect and approval among African Americans in cities across the country. Organizing their community to achieve a set of achievable political goals, coupled with using open carry laws to be an armed presence, which mitigated the casual official violence they were constantly subjected to, gave people self-esteem, purpose, and above all, pride, intoxicating feelings that had so long been structurally denied. The response of the media to the words black power was overwhelmingly negative and stoked unjustified fear of an armed black uprising, painting the Black Panther Party with the same brush as the KKK. In Illinois, a high school senior, already a community organizer, had rallied enough support to set up a black cultural center in Maywood, a town outside of Chicago and was successfully campaigning for his high school to hire black teachers and administrators, took notice of what was happening in California. His name was Fred, Fred Hampton, who at the age of 17 had devoured every history book and political biography he could get his hands on. The knowledge he gained freed his mind and filled it with the realization that we have all been deceived, that we were all victims of a lie inflicted upon humanity, because the modern concept of race was constructed and created to justify the slave trade and the murderous subjugation of indigenous people during the era of colonial expansion. All done so that a very few people could get rich, thus making the struggle of African Americans the same struggle as people around the world, the oppressors versus the oppressed. And this knowledge made him feel powerful, and he wished to spread to others, teaching, educating, empowering them. Thus, when he discovered that the Black Panther Party had adopted Malcolm X's stance in the year before his assassination, that not all white people were bad, Fred took it further. White people were not inherently bad, but were raised in a society where the systemic racism was built in, that did not teach anyone the truth, and that all people could be, should be, and would become allies in the class struggle. He found the party's message appealing, in line with many of his own thoughts, but had not yet decided to join. 1966 was the year after the U.S. had started its massive bombing campaign on North Vietnam. And the images and stories of civilians suffering coming home were horrific. Muhammad Ali refused to register for the draft and said, Why should they ask me to put on a uniform and 10,000 miles from home? and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam when so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights, becoming the cultural icon of the anti-war movement and inspiring hundreds of thousands to do the same and march in protest, chanting, Hell no, we won't go. As yet, the NAACP and Dr. King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference had more or less remained neutral on the Vietnam War justifiably wary of coming out against it and angering politicians in the government they desperately needed to get any further reforms passed. This widened the breach between Dr. King and the rising Black Panther Party, and many other groups took this as a sign that he was out of touch. Fred Hampton graduated high school that year and spent the summer earning money for college. He dreamed of becoming a lawyer. He too refused to register for the draft and spent his free time volunteering for community projects in Maywood 
and in Chicago to march with Dr. King in his campaign to end racial discrimination in employment, education, and housing. Fred wanted to learn for himself what pacifism in the face of violent hatred could achieve. The Chicago political structure and democratic machine around Mayor Daley did nothing to protect the protesters. Dr. King later wrote, Swastika bloomed in Chicago parks like misbegotten weeds. Our marchers were met by a hailstorm of bricks, bottles, and firecrackers. Even the Catholic nuns and priests who escorted the multi-ethnic protesters came under assault. For 18-year-old Fred, this kind of pacifism was not the way. But he respected the reverend greatly. And later Fred said, Every time I speak in church, I try to say something, you know, about Martin Luther King. I have a lot of respect for Martin Luther King. I think he was one of the greatest orators that the country ever produced. Fred thought as he moved through the streets of Chicago, synthesizing all he had read about global social struggles, the French Revolution, and the more recent socialist and communist revolutions around the world. Becoming head of the youth chapter of the NAACP by acclamation while he formulated his thoughts. Bringing together the international struggles of people in the ravages of the post-colonial world and the struggle of African Americans at home together, and not just black people, but all people. It was about the oppressors and the oppressed, the haves and the haves-nots, the very few rich and the vast poor masses. Visualizing society as a mountain valley, and through trial and error formed it into a narrative, he had to make the people of America see that unless you were at the absolute top of the power structure, then you were just like everyone else, no matter your relative level of economic comfort. Fred said, Although some of us come from what some of you would call petty bourgeoisie families, though some of us could be in a sense what you call the mountaintop, we could be integrated into a society working with people that we may never have a chance to work with. Maybe we could be on the mountaintop, and maybe we wouldn't have to be hiding when we go to speak places like this. Maybe we wouldn't have to worry about court cases and going to jail and being sick. We say that even though all of these luxuries exist on the mountaintop, we understand that you people and your problems are right here in the valley. Always talking to people, telling them, making them see, while organizing and marching for change within the system. 1967 was a turning point for Fred. In California, in response to massive pressure from police unions and public fear of the Black Panthers, gun legislation was being passed in record time that would overturn the law and ban the open carrying of firearms. In protest, 30 Panthers of the Oakland chapter went to the state capitol in Sacramento in their distinct black leather jackets and black berets, carrying weapons to display their right to. And the images, pictures, video, articles, and media portrayal of this peaceful demonstration as a Black Panther invasion of the legislature pushed the existing fear into a national hysteria. If you want just a tiny taste of that hysteria and feel its cultural resonance, think back to Beyonce performing with her dancers in Black Panther garb during the Super Bowl halftime show and the reactions to it. In May 1967, Armed Panthers were on the covers of nearly every newspaper and magazine across the country, spotlighted not for who they were and what they were fighting for, but as an armed uprising, a black KKK. And this attention, 
like the Eye of Sauron brought J. Edgar Hoover, and the full resources of COINTELPRO were unleashed on the already harassed and surveilled party. Meanwhile, in Maywood, Fred was holding meetings and rallies for the youth chapter of the NAACP and partnered with the main adult organization to petition the Maywood Village Board to build a public swimming pool and recreation center for the underserved community. He invited everyone he met to the board meeting, powerfully built and charismatic, yet with an underlying kindness that shone through even when he spoke his most fiery words. They came, in their hundreds, and the crowd in the meeting filled the building and spilled out into the streets around. Fred asked the village board that the meeting be moved to a larger space. Yet at that moment, the Maywood police panicked and shot tear gas into the crowd outside, who while running away down the main street broke store windows and yelled at residents. In response, Fred, who was inside the town hall when this took place, was arrested and charged with inciting mob action. From then on, whenever he was driving on the streets of Maywood or Chicago, he was a target of constant police harassment, being pulled over so often that he had to stop driving. And in Washington, the FBI placed him on its National Key Agitators Index, which caused J. Edgar Hoover himself to ask his agents about this 18-year-old. 1968 proved a turning point for America, a year I will cover in depth in the future. In late January, in the wake of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, with intense media coverage on the nightly news, the number of anti-war protests skyrocketed across the country. The coverage was so damaging that President Lyndon Johnson, a man who loved the job, decided not to run for another term, and it was becoming clear that the next election would be a referendum on the Vietnam War. Pitting younger Americans, whose criticism of the government and capitalism seemed like conspiracy theories from college kids with their minds addled by marijuana, to the older generations, who generally believed what the government told them, never thinking for a moment that their trust was being violated. Energized, on university campuses, massive organizing efforts were underway and daily protests held for many issues, including the war, racism, feminism, to name just a few with students calling for a cultural revolution. In solidarity, students at universities in London, Paris, Berlin, and Rome joined their voices and marched. Civil unrest spread to East Bloc countries, where the young protested against the lack of freedom of speech and the violation of other human rights by the communist political elites. A spirit of revolution seemed to be sweeping the planet. And just to give you a sense of how the class struggle is well-known and clearly seen by those at the top, through their well-established COINTELPRO connections with nearly every police department, their daily briefings changed rhetorically. Student protests in the past, with a few notable exceptions, had largely been peaceful. But suddenly, these students were being painted as the spoiled children of white-collar doctors and lawyers, upper-middle-class rich kids who were mocking the law and the blue-collared policemen who were swore to uphold it. This resulted in violence directed at student protesters from phalanxes of police standing in their path, eager and willing to beat them back, whereas before, they had largely let the march go by without incident. Then, on April 4th, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, and riots erupted in major cities across America, with people's grief 
anguish, and frustration, resulting in burning, looting, and violence, escalating racial tensions dramatically. Fred, for his part, mourned the loss of Dr. King and attempted to bring his community together and share their grief in an attempt to avoid rioting, or more specifically, property damage that would bring a brutal crackdown from the pigs. Then came the briefest respite from the chaos and despair sweeping the country when Senator Robert F. Kennedy became a beacon of hope. He decided to run in the Democratic primaries for the nomination for president on a platform of international non-aggression, meaning ending the Vietnam War and all offensive wars, speaking to huge crowds about healing the breaches and all that divided America domestically by using his new international approach at home non-aggression, and reaching a level of understanding through societal discourse. He too was assassinated in June after winning the California primary, and with him dead, so too was the notion of any progressive worldview being achieved within the system for many. This culminated at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, where peaceful student protesters from around the nation, simply exercising their right to express their views in public, that was committed to ending the Vietnam War, were met by riot police and the National Guard in a brutal suppression of free speech and basic human dignity. Yet in Maywood and small venues across Chicago, something else was happening. Packing churches, old theaters, to hear society's ills and the people's plight put in the context of the structural evils of the system itself. They had never heard it so eloquently put The murder of Dr. King had affected Fred in a profound way, as it had so many, but instead of breaking his spirit, it had awakened something in him. He was sick of the abuse, harassment, conditions, and violence he and everyone around him faced every day. And Dr. King, who had never hurt anyone, preaching pacifism to bring change. Yet in the last year, when his message had become anti-war, internationalist, and if not outright anti-capitalist, definitely with socialist undertones. He was demonized in the press. Doors that were open before in Washington were closed to him. He was threatened and marginalized. And when nothing worked to change his rhetoric, they had killed him. The doctor's death had convinced Fred that the system could not be changed from within. It had to be broken, not just here in Chicago, but in a united international struggle of all oppressed people. He would make them see the truth. He would channel the grief from all the murders, assassinations, and deaths to birth a billion epiphanies with his voice and words. It was time to set the world right. It was time for revo- Hang on a second. Before I tell you what Fred said, and in order to do his words justice, I'm going to explain two things. When Fred mentions ADC victims, he is speaking of a horrific law passed in Louisiana in 1900 that authorized the state to rip children away from their mothers if they were caught in acts of anything the authorities considered sexual impropriety. In the context of the puritanical and punitive times, in essence, a single mother who dated could and did have their children taken away to be orphans raised by the state. This disproportionately affected African-American women, and the stories of those children and the horrors they experienced in the system were coming to light and the people were angry. Next, Babylon. Babylon is not a place, it is a feeling. 
an aspiration to fulfill the political promise of mythical Babylon, where no one went hungry or unsheltered, and the problem of one was the problem of all. A term widely used by the Black Panthers. And Fred, who had read everything Bobby Seale and Huey Newton had written, adopted it before he joined the party. But when Fred said, Babylon, something was different. He projected a vibe so intoxicating that it shattered racial, social, and socioeconomic walls. Because to attain it, to attain Babylon, requires the realization that everyone on the planet's multitude of social and economic struggles exists because of oppressors seeking to divide and rule, thus making all struggles one struggle, the class struggle. And to win it required complete commitment to unity, unprecedented international solidarity between all people. Revolution. Fred said, A lot of people get the word revolution mixed up, and they think revolution's a bad word. Revolution is nothing but like having a sore on your body, and then you put something on that sore to cure that infection. I'm telling you that we're living in a sick society. We're involved in a society that produces ADC victims. We're involved in a society that produces criminals, thieves, and robbers and rapers. When you're in a society like that, that is a sick society. We're going to organize and dedicate ourselves to revolutionary political power and teach ourselves the specific needs of resisting the power structure, arm ourselves, and we're going to fight reactionary pigs with international proletarian revolution. That's what it has to be. The people have to have the power. It belongs to the people. Wary of government spies, infiltrators, and those who adopted leftist talking points for their own profit on the lecture circuit, he went on. Unless people show us through their social practice that they can relate to the struggle in Babylon, that means they're not internationalists. That means they're not revolutionaries. And when you're marching on this cruel war in Washington, all you radicals, we need to have some moratoriums on Babylon. We need to have some moratoriums on the black community in Babylon and all oppressed communities in Babylon. In the summer of 1968, a local leader of the SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the future congressman Bobby Rush, saw Fred speak to a large crowd in a park. He was amazed with the power of his words and the effect he had on the people, more when he realized that half the crowd was not African-American. They were whites, Latinos, and others, all of them riveted by Fred's words. He had them entranced, the word Babylon on everyone's lips. Bobby Rush was an aspiring Black Panther. Perhaps there was an alliance and merger between their organizations to be had. He boarded a plane and flew to California and went to Black Panther headquarters to let them know that in Chicago, there was a star. If the party could recruit him to lead a Black Panther chapter in Chicago, with some guidance and resources, Fred Hampton would be the supernova that could spread the revolution across the world. The kid could actually make people see Babylon, feel its promise. Both the SNCC and Black Panthers were under assault from local police and FBI. Raiding their offices, constant harassment, wiretapping, with informers and infiltrators causing chaos within their ranks. In the case of the Panthers, False charges of criminal conduct of every kind were being filed against its leadership and members. COINTELPRO, the covert war, was going into overdrive in 1968. 
only to be bolstered when President Johnson authorized the CIA's Domestic Operations Division to unleash Operation Chaos, or MH Chaos, a massive domestic spying program using the same tactics on Americans at home that they had used on enemies abroad. These programs were top secret and would not come to light for years, but to every group that was even remotely progressive in the country, the air was thick with oppression. Unity between all, solidarity, was the only chance to fight the awesome power being directed at them. The only hope to get enough people to realize the truth of what they were striving for. Based on everything Bobby had told them and reports they had heard, this kid, Fred Hampton, was the truth. Party leadership decided to reach out. It took some convincing and an agreement that Fred could implement changes to party policy and its constitution. But he joined, established, recruited, and took leadership of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, defining the party as the vanguard of a soon-to-be international alliance of movements. By putting all the political theory being endlessly debated on the left into practice, Fred said, A lot of people think that the revolution is bullshit, but it's not. A lot of us think that when you get in the revolution, you can talk your way out of things, but that's not true. Ask Bobby Hutton, ask Huey Newton, ask Eldridge Cleaver, Mickey White, and Dennis Mora. Ask these people whether it's a game. If you get yourself involved in a revolutionary struggle, then you've got to be serious. You've got to know what you're doing. You've got to already have practiced some type of theory. That's the reason we ask people to follow the leadership of the Vanguard Party. Because we all theorizing and we all practicing. We make mistakes but we're willing to correct them and we're always getting better. We used to run around yelling about Panther power. The Panthers run it. We admit we made mistakes. Our 10-point program is in the midst of being changed right now because we use the word white when we should have used the word capitalist. We're the first to admit our mistakes. We no longer say Panther power because we don't believe the Panthers should have all the power. We're not for the dictatorship of the Panthers. We are not for the dictatorship of black people. We are for the dictatorship of the people. The difference between the people and the vanguard is very important. You got to understand that people follow the vanguard. You got to understand that the Black Panther Party is the vanguard. If you're about going to the people, you got to understand that the vanguard leads the people. After the social revolution, the vanguard party, through our educational programs, and that program is overwhelming. The people are educated to the point that they can run things themselves. That's what you call educating the people, organizing the people, arming the people, and bringing them revolutionary political power. That means people's power. That means people's revolution. And if you're not about being involved in a people's revolution, then you got to do something. You got to support the people's revolution. Fred had problems immediately. You see, the Black Panther Party financed itself and its social programs by selling its newspapers on street corners. In Chicago, those corners in those neighborhoods were controlled by local gangs who used them for dealing drugs. Many of these gangs were riddled with informants, which were used to plant the rumor that the Black Panthers were here to usurp them. In fact, these same informants had been used to get the gangs to attack peaceful protesters marching through their neighborhoods using the same sorts of disinformation. Fred launched a campaign of diplomacy, arranging to meet with the leaders of various gangs across the city telling them about the class struggle, letting them know what the Panthers were actually about. 
These meetings were tense and dangerous, with police being tipped off about them happening and then arresting participants afterwards to stoke suspicions about the gang ratting out the Panthers or vice versa. Fred persisted and scored a diplomatic coup when David Barksdale, leader of the powerful Black Disciples Gang, agreed to a treaty that allowed the Panthers to organize, recruit, and conduct their business in the neighborhoods he controlled. This alarmed the police and FBI in the city, who had always been able to manipulate and use the gangs as an off-the-books paramilitary against protesters. Fred's diplomatic success led to a meeting with the leader of Chicago's largest and most well-armed gang, the Blackstone Rangers. Jeff Fort was a kingpin, who had grown rich through his gang's control of the drug trade. He heard Fred out, and impressed by the way he spoke and his charisma, offered Fred a chance to make millions by using the Black Panthers as his own distribution network for drugs that Fort would supply. Fred refused point-blank. And while not securing any agreement, because the kingpin liked Fred, they did not leave on bad terms, with hope that perhaps at their next meeting they could work out a pact of neutrality. This possibility was seen as such a threat that the FBI tried to start a war between the two groups, hoping that the Rangers would kill Hampton. I've included the anonymous letter that was sent to Fort as an example of how these messages work, though this internal FBI memo would not come to light until 1975 during the Senate's Church Committee revelations. It was sent to FBI Director Hoover from the Chicago office and is captioned Counterintelligence Program, Black Panther Party. It reads, Chicago now recommends the following letter be sent to Fort, handwritten on plain paper. Brother Jeff, I've spent some time with Panther friends on the west side lately, and I know what's been going on. The brothers that run the Panthers blame you for blocking their thing, and there's supposed to be a hit out for you. I'm not a Panther or a Ranger, just black. From what I see, these Panthers are out here for themselves, not black people. I think you ought to know what they are up to. I know what I'd do if I was you. You might hear from me again. Signed, a black brother you don't know. It is believed the above may intensify the degree of animosity between the two groups and occasion for it to take retaliatory action which could disrupt the BPP or lead to reprisals against its leadership. When the letter failed to start a war, the harassment and violence around the Panthers intensified. Wishing to get Fred off the streets, he was falsely charged with stealing $71 of ice cream from a truck and handing it out to children. For this offense, which would soon go to trial, the government was seeking five years in prison. We'll come back to this soon. Fred was proving so popular a speaker and charismatic a leader that his chapter had to stop accepting members because they could not initiate, educate, screen, and integrate so many into their rapidly expanding movement. Intrigued by the explosion of support and wishing to learn how Fred was achieving this, longtime Panthers from California booked a hotel room downtown. Upon arrival, they called the Chicago chapter and asked for Fred to quote, send some Panther sisters down, meaning to come party with them. Fred said, you can tell them Panther women in Chicago are working on Panther programs, not as whores for Panther leaders. The massively popular and ever-growing Panther programs were education, legal assistance from an alliance of mostly white progressive lawyers, and the gold standards for putting theory into practice, free medical clinics, and the Breakfast for Children program a free daily meal for poor children, 
who could never be sure when or if they would eat on any given day. Speaking on it, Fred said, We have to understand very clearly that there's a man in our community called a capitalist. Sometimes he's black and sometimes he's white. But that man has to be driven out of our community because anybody who comes into the community to make profit off the people by exploiting them can be defined as a capitalist. Any program that's brought into our community should be analyzed by the people of that community. It should be analyzed to see if it meets the relevant needs of that community. That's what the Breakfast for Children program is. A lot of people think it's charity, but what does it do? It takes people from one stage to another stage. Any program that's revolutionary is an advancing program. Revolution is change. We say that the Breakfast for Children program is a socialistic program. It teaches the people basically that by practice. We thought up and let them practice that theory and inspect that theory. What's more important? A woman said, I don't know if I like communism, and I don't know if I like socialism. But I know that the Breakfast for Children program feeds my kids. Honey, if you just keep on changing before you know it, in fact, you don't even have to know what it is. They're endorsing it. They're participating in it. And they're supporting socialism. The tactic of putting it into practice suddenly had decades of effort to demonize anything to do with socialism being undone by a 20-year-old in Chicago. And worse, in the eyes of the forces arrayed against him, Fred's message was spreading across the city like wildfire, so much so that Fred was able to organize an alliance with the leaders of the Young Lords organization in Lincoln Park and the Young Patriots on the north side. The YLO, originally a Puerto Rican street gang, had evolved into an organization to stop gentrification and the expulsion of local residents. The Young Patriots, consisting of whites from the South and Appalachia, who had moved to Chicago in search of work, flew the Confederate flag as their symbol. I want to add one thing here, as Fred's alliance with the Young Patriots has been continually mentioned by talking heads in the media as an alliance with Nazis. This is not true. As poor and working-class whites, they found themselves ostracized from the white ethnic groups that used their European country of origin as their identity in Chicago. The young patriots and the people in their neighborhood were treated as hillbillies and trash, thus using the Confederate flag as a form of pride and to give themselves a historical identity in the context of the nation. And while they were a racist among them, generally speaking, they were no more racist than society in general. Fred broke it down. All of their struggles and the poor material conditions of their communities had absolutely nothing to do with race, a concept forced upon them to sow division, but it was all due to the excesses of capitalism. Fred said, We never negated the fact that there was racism in America, but we said that the byproduct, what comes off capitalism, that happens to be racism. The capitalism comes first and racism is next. That when they brought slaves over here, it was to make money. So first the idea came that we want to make money. Then the slaves came in order to make that money. That means through historical fact that racism had to come from capitalism. It had to be capitalism first and racism was a byproduct of that. We've got to face some facts. That the masses are poor. That the masses belong to what you call the lower class. And when I talk about the masses, I'm talking about the white masses. I'm talking about the black masses and the brown masses and the yellow masses too. We've got to face the fact that some people say you fight fire best with fire. 
But we say you put fire out best with water. We say you don't fight racism with racism. We're going to fight racism with solidarity. We say you don't fight capitalism with no black capitalism. You fight capitalism with socialism. The Panthers, the Young Lords, Young Patriots, a variety of student organizations, progressive clergy, and people from all walks of life became the Rainbow Coalition. If that name sounds familiar, it is because it was the name adopted for supporters of the Reverend Jesse Jackson during his run for the leadership of the Democratic Party in 1988. The YLO and Young Patriots accepted the Panthers as the vanguard party and began intense efforts in their communities, introducing free medical clinics and social programs. And the communities took notice and bought into it wholeheartedly. The poor and oppressed came together, soon spreading the word of this revolution in Chicago in towns across the country where they had relatives or friends. People from far and wide came to hear Fred speak, to feel the promise of Babylon. The FBI's Chicago Racial Matter Squad the colloquial name for Co-IntelPro, directed all its resources against the Black Panthers and especially at Fred, unleashing the Chicago PD to be in essence at open war with the Panthers. Their offices and clubs were continually raided. Their newspapers burned, their printing presses destroyed, food for the Breakfast for Children program thrown out onto the street to rot, party members assaulted and then arrested on the flimsiest pretext. Many of these raids started with no warning and often began with salvos of gunfire through doors and windows. Fred was being hunted, and if he had any doubt that he was being targeted for assassination, it was silenced on January 24, 1969, when Fred was about to be interviewed on a major local television station. Directed by the FBI, who would not allow the general public to hear him speak, the Chicago police arrested him in front of live cameras on an old traffic warrant just before the interview began. They let him out and put him in the back of a squad car. Fred noticed that something was wrong when they did not cuff him, and then was horrified to see that on the seat next to him was a loaded revolver. Luckily, the window had been left open, and Fred stuck his hands out, screaming that there was a gun in the car. Too many bystanders noticed, and the plan was undone. He literally dodged a bullet in the obvious setup for his murder. From then on, Fred kept Panthers around him at all times and rarely slept in the same location twice. He spent his days going to oversee the various and ever-growing number of Breakfast for Children locations, ordering party operations, raising funds, and soliciting donations to help party members pay for lawyers for the ever-growing number of largely false or trumped-up criminal charges against them. Criminal because legal aid lawyers could not represent them, meaning that the Panthers would have to pay criminal defense attorneys. And with so many cases, it was becoming a massive expense. Fred was speaking wherever he went, always educating people on the class struggle. When asked why he put so much emphasis on education when he preached the practical application of theory, Fred said, You can't build a revolution with no education. Jomo Kenyatta did this in Africa, and because the people were not educated, he became as much an oppressor as the people he overthrew. Look at Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti. He got everyone to hate whites, and he turned into a dictator himself. How will people end up without education? Under Fred's leadership, the Chicago chapter had become the vanguard of the vanguard party. 
And in addition to all the horrors of COINTELPRO and police harassment, with all the attention, he came under attack from African Americans who criticized his Rainbow Coalition. He brushed off their comments and called them dashiki nationalists. And when the media started amplifying his detractors, Fred said, We got a lot of answers for those people. First of all, we say primarily that the priority of this struggle is class. That Marx and Lenin and Che Guevara and Mao Zedong and anybody who ever said or knew or practiced anything about revolution always said that a revolution is a class struggle. It was one class, the oppressed, versus the other classes, the oppressor. And it's got to be a universal fact. Those that don't want to admit that are those who don't want to get involved in a revolution. Because they know, as long as they're dealing with a race thing, they'll never be involved in a revolution. Now recall the $71 ice cream robbery that Fred was charged with. In May 1969, Fred went to trial. To give you an idea of just how far the government was willing to go to get Fred sent to prison, they flew the driver who identified Fred as the ice cream truck Robin Hood from Vietnam, where he was serving after being drafted, back to Chicago just to testify. An unheard of measure and expense for such a petty crime. And that only makes sense when the city, state, and federal government were intent on getting him off the streets. The small courtroom was packed with his supporters. A truly rare sight of multi-ethnic people, a rainbow. All offering to do anything they could to help and asking his lawyer, Gene Williams Esquire, to be character witnesses on Fred's behalf. Yet it all mattered not. After a two-day trial, Fred was convicted. The judge, Sidney Jones, an African-American, indicated that since Fred had no criminal record, no weapon was used in the ice cream heist, and no one was injured, that he was leaning towards giving Fred a sentence of probation. Just to display one problem with the politicized justice system, during the three weeks between his trial and his sentencing hearing, the state's attorney, Edward Hanrahan, held a large press conference and in his speech cast the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton as anarchist criminals seeking to lead an armed uprising and then spent minutes condemning Judge Jones for considering a sentence of probation, resulting in many days of newspapers filled with articles about the state's attorney's dire warning of the magnitude of the threat that the Black Panther Party posed. Thus, on May 27, 1969, at Fred's sentencing hearing, the prosecutor asked, Are your principles consistent and compatible with those of Mao Zedong of Red China? His lawyer, who had insisted that Fred call her Jean, had advised him not to answer any questions except the judges. But Jean had come to know the young man. She was so impressed with the way Fred spoke and the way his voice, his face, his eyes projected his thoughts with astonishing depth of knowledge and feeling. She had witnessed the effect he had on people, and he was looking at her, clearly eager to answer. So she allowed her client to do so, an epic roll of the dice. Jean knew that the hysteria about the threat of her client and his party, stoked by the state attorney's press conference, was double-edged, at once cutting the public by using the politics of fear, and cutting the judge by the private threat to his career and any future ambitions. For you see, state attorney Halrahan was a well-established power broker in Chicago's notoriously corrupt Democratic Party political machine. And by condemning the judge's judgment in considering probation, 
was a warning to the judge that he would need his endorsement along with his considerable pull within the machine when the judge ran for re-election. Why would the judge, or anyone else for that matter, throw away their hopes and dreams that they'd worked and strived for all of their lives to save a self-proclaimed revolutionary who was seeking to break the social ladder they had spent their entire lives climbing? In the packed courtroom, at that minute, their only hope was for Fred to reach the judge. So Jean nodded at Fred, allowing him to answer the most inflammatory of the prosecutor's questions. In answer, Fred said, We take things from Mao Zedong and Martin Luther King or anybody else applicable to what we are after. The prosecutor followed up with, Do you feel that a legitimate means of obtaining what you are after is armed violence or armed revolution? And Fred said, I believe if we tried anything else, we would end up like Dr. Martin Luther King. According to legend, when Fred spoke that last sentence, he was looking directly into Judge Jones's eyes. And when he finished, for an instant, the judge's eyes softened, as if he understood that this young man's struggle was his as well. The promise, the yearning for Babylon. But in the blink of the judge's eyes, it was gone. He could not give up everything he had worked so hard for by angering the state's attorney. The judge sentenced Fred to two to five years in prison, and he was immediately remanded into custody, placed in a van under heavy escort, and taken 350 miles away from home to Maynard Prison in South Illinois. With Fred off the streets, the Chicago office of the FBI moved on Panther headquarters. They obtained a warrant from a judge by swearing that a fugitive was hiding in the building. They left out that said fugitive was an FBI informant, who they would send to appear and then conveniently disappear an hour or two before many raids. The building was surrounded by a veritable army, and then a phone call was placed to the headquarters informing them that they were surrounded. The eight Panthers inside surrendered without resistance, but they were arrested and charged with aiding and abetting a fugitive. The office was ransacked. A cache of legally attained and licensed firearms was seized, along with $3,000 collected for legal defense, never to be returned. A week's worth of food for the children of the community was destroyed. And crucially, the FBI got a hold of the one thing that Fred had always kept in his mind. A list of all the donors to Fred's Black Panther chapter, more than one-third of whom were white progressives who provided the largest donations because of their relative wealth. Middle and upper-middle-class professionals, thus ripe targets for COINTELPRO intimidation. When they arrived at the station, the arrested Panthers were made to walk the pig's gauntlet. A long hallway lined with police wielding their nightsticks on either side, brutally assaulting each as they passed, until they fell broken, blood spilling from their wounds onto the floor of their holding cells. This raid, coupled with the loss of their leader, caused many Black Panthers and hundreds of volunteers to abandon the cause. The hundreds of people that had been on the waiting list for party membership seemingly vanished. And to continue the Breakfast for Children program, the remaining Panthers accepted whoever they could, and unbeknownst to them, accepted dozens of paid FBI informants into their ranks. But then hope, when a team of lawyers from the ACLU and the People's Law Office appeared before Chief Justice Schaefer of the Illinois Supreme Court and successfully argued that Fred be released on an appeal bond 
pointing out the litany of injustices that they planned to cite that had resulted in the original verdict. And on August 13, 1969, Fred was granted bail. He returned to his party that he now barely recognized. A chief lieutenant had been executed by the pigs for refusing to drop his grocery bags because each contained glass milk containers. His other friends that made up the leadership of his chapter had been charged or were on trial for crimes they largely did not commit. Fred directed all the few remaining donations and all income from the drastically reduced Panther newspaper sales to keep the Breakfast for Children program alive. He would not let the children starve. The result was that the unjustly jailed Panthers had to wait for bail. And while stuck in that limbo of injustice, many became informants after threats were made against their families and friends. Surrounded by enemies, Fred spoke, his speeches recorded by people in the crowd, or written down word for word, and spread from university campus to campus. There are far too many incidents of violence between the pigs and the Panthers for me to mention. But just understand that once Fred was released from prison, he and the Chicago Panthers were all marked for destruction. The exception was in Maywood, where progressive members of the city council begged Fred to live, to save his life, where the community policing measures he had organized for had finally borne fruit. They had enough oversight to limit the amount of harassment he would face, at least from the local police. But Fred could not, would not leave the spotlight of Chicago. He believed for the revolution to truly become international, it required him and his friends to endure all the horrors inflicted upon them. His hope was someone somewhere in the media would take notice and portray the movement for what it actually was. The thing is, so much of what we have learned is with the benefit of hindsight and was not known to Fred. He, nor most anyone else, did not know of Hoover's purges of the media in the Red Scares. He did not know of the existence of Cointel Pro or the CIA's MH Chaos as state-sponsored instruments of a covert war against its own citizens. Citizens who were merely exercising their rights to free speech and thought and their constitutionally guaranteed right to revolt against a government enforcing a tyranny. But all those forces were there. He felt their presence all around him. He suspected they were watching, waiting, as so many leaders in the 1960s did before him. But the sheer scope of those programs are beyond even a modern scholar's ability to fully comprehend. CoIntelPro was so invasive, all-consuming, every shadow cast by the light of Fred's public speeches before hundreds and thousands were filled with infiltrators and coerced or paid FBI informants. Oppression was thick in the air, suffocating, the famous trial of the Chicago 8 began that fall, and it was personal for Fred, because Panther co-founder Bobby Seale was the eighth defendant, all of whom were on trial for trumped-up charges of conspiracy and crossing state lines with the intent to incite a riot. All of the defendants were politically convenient scapegoats for the chaos that erupted in Chicago during the Democratic Party convention in 1968 as demonstrated by the fact that all of their convictions would later be overturned. Bobby Seale was charged because he was a co-founder of the Black Panthers. He only came to Chicago to deliver a speech and was only in the city for four hours. The trial and his participants will be covered in detail in the future. But for now, just know that Fred loved Bobby 
and spent much of the fall of 1969 in the courtroom in solidarity and outside giving speeches, desperately trying to raise money for the Panthers' legal defense fund, which he did, yet riddled with informants and infiltrators, when money was raised, their offices would be raided and the money seized, never to be returned. Something else was happening that fall. Members of Fred's Rainbow Coalition were traveling to visit relatives. Students spread his message on college campuses, and they in turn would take the message and promise of Babylon to their hometowns. And they were reaching people, making them understand that their poor material conditions had nothing to do with promoted societal divisions, undoing the social sin of otherizing. And people across the country and world were beginning to understand that the feeling that something was wrong with society, all the chaos and turmoil, was because they were all caught in the class struggle together. Perhaps worse in the eyes of the FBI, the Rainbow Coalition had raised enough funds to buy a large pot of land and planned to build housing for people, putting theory into practice, a neighborhood where everyone would look out for each other, with a community school, gardens to grow vegetables, recreational facilities that policed itself where no one would go hungry, and even with internal cottage industries where clothes would be manufactured. It was to be the model of many more neighborhoods to show in practice their theory of a better world, of Babylon. In Maynard Prison, where Fred had been locked up before he was granted an appeal bond, the prisoners were taking collective action for better conditions. The inmates were organizing because during his short time there, Fred's words had moved many. When the perceived ringleaders were rounded up and transferred to other prisons, they started preaching Fred's message. And though not possessing his charisma, his narrative transcended race. Slowly, prisoners were listening and organizing. And because of this, somewhere in a proverbial smoke-filled room, it was decided that Fred could not be allowed to go to jail because his mere presence in the population would catastrophically disrupt the penal system. The FBI wanted, needed Fred dead before he was sent back to prison, which was to take place on December 5, 1969, because Fred's appeal had been denied. Desperate for money to help Bobby Seal and to keep the Breakfast for Children program going while he was in prison, Fred, watched from every angle, surrounded by FBI informants at all times, somehow eluded surveillance. This episode demonstrates how suspicious Fred was of the New Panthers around him because he slipped into a van and was driven to the Regina campus of the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. The students there had raised somewhere between three and $10,000 to aid the Panthers. But in exchange, they wanted, needed to hear him speak. They wished to experience Babylon if only for an instant. Fred's Rainbow Coalition had indeed become the international movement he had always dreamed of. So he went enchanted the students, and returned to Chicago without the FBI ever knowing, despite the fact that his appearance made headlines in Regina. Fred returned home to spend his last few days of freedom, ensuring that everything would run smoothly with the party while he was away. He had rented a home a few blocks away from Panther's headquarters, staying in one place against the advice of everyone who cared about his safety. Why? Because one thing you don't know about Fred is that in 1969, he fell in love. Her name was Deborah Johnson, and she was seven months pregnant. 
The reason he had forsaken the inherent security of never being in one place for too long was that he wanted to spend time with Deborah and make sure that she and their soon-to-be-born baby would have a home while he was in prison. Their home had panthers in it for security, but it was also as if Fred was tired of hiding, and it accepted the fact that he was a marked man, and either the FBI would kill him or the revolution would succeed. He had taken to ending all of his interactions with crowds during his speeches with the following refrain that had become the rallying cry for unity, and he hoped would keep the promise of Babylon alive no matter what happened to him. To the crowds, Fred would say, All right, all right, all right, power to the people. They'd say, Power to the people. He'd say, Now I'm not going to die on no airplane. They'd say, No. He'd say, I'm not going to die slipping on some ice. They'd say, No. He'd say, I'm going to die for the people because I'm going to live for the people. They'd say, Right on. He'd say, I'm going to live for the people because I love the people. They'd say, right on. He'd say, I love the people. Why? They'd say, because we're high on the people. Because we're high on the people. On the evening of December 3rd, 1969, the night before his last day of freedom before reporting to prison, Fred was in bed with Deborah, and something strange happened. While on the phone with his mother, Fred fell into a deep sleep. Deborah knew Fred was exhausted, so she thought nothing of it. At 4 a.m. the next morning, their home was assaulted in a massive police raid under the direct supervision of state's attorney Halrahan under direct orders from the FBI. There was a boom at the front door and gunfire erupted as the police came in shooting with no warning. The noise and chaos in the building did not wake Fred, so Deborah shook him violently, yelling for him to wake up. Fred struggled to raise his head off the pillow, just barely coming out of that unnatural sleep only to take a bullet in the shoulder from the police bursting into their bedroom. And Fred said, Nothing. A hail of gunfire, over 90 bullets swept their bed. Deborah was miraculously uninjured, and she was roughly cuffed and thrown into the next room, where she and the other Panthers who lived there as protection lay shot, wounded, and were being beaten as they lay helpless. Deborah, handcuffed and on the ground, her eyes streaming with tears for Fred. Fear that one of the pigs would kick her in the stomach and kill their baby kept her quiet, so she listened. And from their bedroom, she heard the policeman standing over his bullet-ridden body say, That's Fred Hampton. Is he dead? Bring him out. He's barely alive. He'll make it. Followed by two gunshots, and then he's good and dead now. Those two shots had been to Fred's head, and COINTELPRO's latest Black Messiah was dead. Fred Hampton was 21, assassinated by the catspaw of the most powerful people in the world because his words destroyed the barriers put in place to divide the people. His deeds put theory into practice and lifted people up, and inspired the one thing that terrifies the mighty more than anything else, class solidarity. Because Fred said if you are not talking about the class struggle, you are not talking about politics. Because Fred said if you are only talking about political theory and not putting it into practice, you were just talking. Because what Fred said is that while people aren't their governments, they certainly should be. Because Fred said if you're asked to make a commitment at the age of 20, 
And you say, I don't want to make no commitment only because of the simple reason that I'm too young to die. I want to live a bit longer. What you did is, you're already dead. You have to understand that the people have to pay the price for peace. You dare to struggle, you dare to win. If you dare not struggle, then goddammit, you don't deserve to win. Afterward, Fred said ends here. But after recording this script, I wanted to take a moment to note a few things. In order to give you the full picture of how programs like CoIntel Pro came to light, I am thinking of doing a follow-up episode as it ties into Fred's story from the civil trial launched on behalf of his family for his murder. Let me know what you think about that idea on Patreon. Next, I wanted to share this quote from Mike Gray, who along with Howard Alk witnessed and filmed Fred's speeches in late 1969 for what was supposed to be a documentary about his life, but wound up becoming 1971's The Murder of Fred Hampton. On the 20th anniversary of Fred's assassination, Mike Gray wrote, A few months after he died, I began to understand what exactly it was about him that separated him from the rest of us. Watching that footage hour after hour in the editing room with Howard Alk, I finally saw that Fred Hampton was fearless, literally without fear. And as we listened to the speeches again and again, it became apparent that he had accommodated death. He knew he was going to die, and it was okay. And so he set aside the ultimate fear, the one that stopped all of us in our tracks, no matter how courageous, the net fear upon which we base all our other fears, the one that keeps us all in line. Hampton had simply set that fear to rest. He was free. Thus he was able to speak clean, simple truths that hit you like a thunderbolt. True freedom means living without fear. Finally, I wanted to qualify what I said at the beginning about how I strove to keep my personal political leanings out of the script. I don't believe in isms, which certainly makes me no kind of ist. All of these theories and systems that we debate, argue, and fight wars over are so new in the grand scale of history that to believe that any of them is the one true way forward is arrogant in the extreme. Theory needs to be put into practice, and when mistakes are made, we correct them. That's how we learn. That's how we evolve. And if history has taught us anything, societies that reject political evolution invite revolution. Recall that in my Halloween tale, Necros, we learned many words that the ancient Greeks used to define every aspect of love. The last, agape, means universal love. Love for the gods, nature, all living things, and especially the less fortunate. An empathetic, altruistic love towards humanity, selflessness, helping others, the ideal basis of all great societies. I don't believe mankind has achieved a great society like that, but I know we can. Thus I support any policies that move us in that direction. But, I will admit that after researching, writing, and recording Fred said, I'm inclined to believe that perhaps agape is the vibe that Fred Hampton projected to everyone who heard him speak. And again, just perhaps, the aspiration I have for a society that is based on agape is akin to the promise of Babylon. Thank you for listening to Deep Into History. I hope you enjoyed. Fred said, Please tell everyone you know to listen to the show.
You can follow me at Deep Into History on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And as always, my dear friend, take care of yourself. I truly look forward to the next time we go deep.